You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are thrilled today to again be able to have a conversation with Dr. Lena Wen. Welcome, Lena. Thank you very much. Great to join you today. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University, and she's a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and a CNN medical analyst. Previously, she served as Baltimore's health commissioner. She's the author of the new book, Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health, which we're here to talk about today. Lena, let's start with you chose to focus in this book in a remarkable, deeply personal way in writing Lifelines. It has a candor, a personal candor to it that's quite unusual. You begin with your upbringing as a young immigrant girl from China, living in financial insecurity in America in the early phase as your parents sought to provide for the family, and you were struggling with asthma and stuttering. You argue that childhood pain and struggle, including witnessing the death of a young child, imbued you with a passion and and a sense of purpose, and that you learned early lessons about poverty, health, and race, and that the public sector, it's the safety net provided by the public sector, taught you that the vital importance of government action. This is a disarmingly powerful way to bring a reader into the narrative. How did you decide to go that that far back in time and be that honest? Well, to be honest, I did not intend to do that. You know, I initially started writing this book because I wanted to tell the story of Baltimore. I was really proud of the work that my team and I did at the Baltimore City Health Department in saving over 3,000 lives from opioid overdose in three years, in reducing infant mortality in our city by 38% in seven years. I mean, I wanted to share these stories and talk about the life-saving, life-changing work of public health from the perspective of being on the front lines. And actually, that was what I initially pitched to my my editor and, in fact, submitted the a first draft of the book based on my, uh, my, my work in Baltimore. And basically, my editor came back and said, this is kind of like telling people that they have to eat their vegetables. <laughs> this is not the most compelling way to tell your story. Basically, she said, you have to get people to care about you And is there a way that you could share your story that also highlights the importance of public health? Was that awkward for you? In order to make people care about you, you had to really be willing to open up in a dramatic way. Right. And actually, in considering what that means, I also recognized that my own story is in itself a story of public health. That when my parents and I first came to the U.S., my parents worked multiple jobs, but we still had trouble making ends meet. There were periods where we depended on Medicaid and food stamps. When my mother was pregnant with my little sister, she depended on WIC. We had public housing at different points. We also relied on, I relied on public education throughout, um, including through college. I mean, so many of these things that others might say are somehow, quote, entitlements. For us, that was a safety net. And I very much, you mentioned this, the, the story that I opened the book with of t- talking about this, this child who died in front of me when I was a child myself. And that very much shaped 
my view of how we live in a country that is not equal. We live in a country where people don't have healthcare as a fundamental human right. And I wanted to help to change that. Something that you've written about and spoken about really has struck me. While you were serving as commissioner of health in Baltimore as a young doctor, then the turmoil following Freddie Gray's murder and the looting and the destruction that followed that seemed to be a, a really profound turning point in your personal development. It seemed to inspire a drive and passion to confront big structural problems, stigma, opioid addiction, excessively high maternal mortality rates among Black women with very aggressive action. Can you talk about that phase of your career and what the triggers were and what was your strategy? What were the most important lasting impacts? Sure. When I was first appointed to be the health commissioner, the mayor at the time was Stephanie Rawlings-Blake. And Mayor Rawlings-Blake often said, when everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. And I very much agreed with her in this respect that you can't do everything. And I think sometimes when it comes to issues in public health, because everything is tied to one another, I mean, of course, I very much agree with the idea of social determinants of health, right? That health is not just about healthcare, it's also about housing, it's also then about education. And then in return, health is tied to so many different elements as well. But I think sometimes there ends up being a sense of decision paralysis, that if everything's related to one another, where do you even begin? So my approach coming in was to say, we have to focus on three priorities. And we determine these priorities through a listening tour with our community members, stakeholders. And also I looked at what it is that we can actually do something about. And so our three priorities became working on overdose and, and opioid addiction, improving youth health and wellness. And along with that, maternal health is, is a portion of that as well. But then also the third is caring for the most vulnerable, recognizing that equity is not a zero-sum game. You don't add years of life from one group of people to another. You actually, by focusing on the most vulnerable, you're improving care for everyone. And so we approach this from, we were approaching these issues and beginning, for example, to get our naloxone program off the ground. And I issued a blanket prescription for naloxone, the opioid antidote, to every resident in our city. And we did trainings across our city. And That was fairly revolutionary. Right, and I think that was... Part of this, and you were asking about strategy, is we recognized that there were long-term problems that we had to address, and it was very difficult to address stigma. And yes, we needed to do that, and we needed to increase access to treatment. But we also, very importantly, had to save lives now. And so it's that coupling. It's the recognizing that long-term action needs to occur, but also that there are short-term steps on the way there. Perfect cannot be the enemy of the good. And I think that was another critical part of the, of the foundation of our strategy in Baltimore. You developed a very, very close relationship and partnership with Congressman Elijah Cummings. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so I think about the late Congressman Elijah Cummings very often. You know, I um, got to know him well in my work in Baltimore. We became very close and I named my son, who's now four, after Congressman Cummings. My son's name is Eli. One of the things that Congressman Cummings often talk about is how we need to turn our pain into our passion that becomes our purpose this idea of pain, passion, and purpose. And I think that spoke so deeply to me as there were, as you mentioned, many deeply painful parts of my childhood that, uh, and, and upbringing that I ended up channeling into something that fuels 
why I do what I do. And I miss Congressman Cummings for so many reasons, including that. I remember my, one of my lasting memories of Congressman Cummings is how every time we would walk into a room and he would be engaged in conversations with people, he always made people feel as if they were the only other person in that room. I've had multiple members of my team who had a conversation with Congressman Cummings that they were left in tears in, they were in tears afterwards. And they would say to me, well, I just haven't had someone who really heard me and understood me and cared about me for who I am as he did in that moment. And I, I just, I hope that my son, little Eli, will have some degree of the humility and compassion and empathy that Congressman Cummings showed. Dr. Wen, you, you've also used this book to come to terms with your relationship to your mother and her early passing. Why now and why was that important to do in this book? Yeah, again, something that I had not intended to do in Lifelines. If you had said to me when I first started writing it, this is going to be a, a, a book about your relationship with your mother and mother-daughter <laughs> dynamics, I would have said, what? I can't write about that. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I couldn't write about my childhood without also reflecting on how, on the regrets that I had. And one of my regrets was that I never really, I, I had, I just had so much resentment towards my mother for as it turns out, in writing this, for not being there. I mean, of course, my mother was studying to become a teacher and working multiple jobs and trying to provide for our family. And that's why we ended up having a relationship that just wasn't ideal for so much of my, my childhood. And then I didn't really, we didn't start becoming close until after she was diagnosed with metastatic cancer when I was a medical student. And even then, our relationship was quite strained. Part of the reason maybe why I ended up writing about my mother so much was I was pregnant with my daughter at the time of writing this book. So I thought a lot about how, how much my mother would have loved to be there to meet my children. She's passed away now for more than 10 years. And of course, I, I think about her and I ended up writing about her too because I want my children one day to read my, my, my book. I don't know that they'll do that anytime soon because they're one and four right now, but I hope that they'll read the book one day and get to know this incredible woman who very much shaped my life and I think in many ways is shaping theirs too. Well, I wish you a lot of luck in getting your children to read your book because my kids are 20, 18, and 15, and they haven't read my book, so... <laughs> I am certain with. that they will one day. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> Lena, you gave birth during the pandemic and your husband also ended up getting diagnosed with COVID before vaccines were widely available. What did these profound experiences teach you about COVID-19 and family? Well, I mean, if it's anything, it's that we're all living through this pandemic in different ways, that it's affecting every aspect of, of us. I mean, anyone who has children, who missed school during this time, anyone who has, who has had loved ones who suffered because of loss of job or because of illness or tragically because of death, we've all been impacted in some way. I mean, I was pregnant during the pandemic. I ended up giving birth in April of 2020 at the very beginning of the pandemic at a time when we didn't even know whether my husband could be with me in the delivery room. And then you mentioned also about my husband's illness back in December before vaccines were, were available. And that also very much shaped my understanding, too, as not only a provider of patients, but also a patient myself and then caring for my husband during this time, too. And so... 
you know, so I, I think we are all living through this in different ways and we're not through it yet. You know, I, I think this pandemic has really shown us too how interconnected we all are. Speaking of not being through it, you've become a prolific Washington Post columnist and CNN cable analyst. You've been quite independent minded and, and, you know, by all accounts that I've heard, a very highly valued guide to the evolving challenges of COVID-19. How do you how do you find this life now and in, in doing what you're doing? And I also want to ask you about the issues that have you the most concerned right now. Well, one of my other mentors is Senator Barbara Mikulski, and she likes to quote the Marines in saying that you should do what you're best at and what you're needed for. I think a lot of us in public health and medicine have had to step up during this time, especially early on in the pandemic when scientists were not allowed to speak within the federal government, when the Trump administration literally was putting out um, information uh, and pressuring the CDC not to release certain data. And I mean, I think we're only beginning to find out about the extent of this now. But I think a lot of us who have been a government before, who understand different aspects of public health policy, found ourselves in a position which we would never, which we would never have expected, but it was what we were needed for. And then as the pandemic evolved too, we also recognized that this was not just like a hurricane that you're needed for a short period of time, but that it's ongoing. Even now, even after the widespread availability of vaccines, we still are having a raging pandemic in this country. And there are a lot of unknowns when it comes to navigating this time. And so I've been, I feel very blessed to be in this position where I can help to guide my patients and by extension, a broader community on how to make sense of the news you can use, if you will, how you can yeah. make sense of, of the times that we're living in. But you ask a really good question about the issues that are concerning me. I mean, there's a lot that's concerning me. Of course, I'm concerned about the pandemic and the fact that there are a lot of people who remain unvaccinated. I'm also very concerned that public health now has been thrust into the midst of culture wars in a way that I think has knock-on effects past COVID-19. As in, I understand and I think it's really unfortunate that COVID-19 has become so politicized and has been in the middle of partisan ideological battles. But then we're also seeing legislatures pass legislation, at least, that will limit the authority of public health officials in the future to, for example, implement quarantine. What about in the future if there are cases of drug-resistant tuberculosis and the health department can no longer impose quarantine on that individual? Or what happens if, God forbid, we have another um, deadly virus and now mask wearing is something that that cannot be done because that those authorities have been removed? I really worry about how public health has become equated with only infection control and specifically only with COVID-19. And I very much worry about what that could mean for the future of public health. What is the best way to address the unvaccinated? There's some new reports out that suggest alternative ways of working with those who are unvaccinated to try to convince them that it's a necessary thing to do. What do you think about all this? I think we need to differentiate between 
the what needs to be done on an individual level versus what needs to be done on a policy level. We know on an individual level that shaming and coercing is not effective. That if you approach an individual, a neighbor, a friend, a family member with compassion and seek to understand why it is that they remain unvaccinated, you get much further. Certainly, I can tell you for us as clinicians working with patients, a lot of people, a lot of our patients are still unvaccinated. We approach them by asking them what concerns they have, and often they relate to specific medical conditions or specific individual circumstances. Addressing those individual concerns is the best way on that personal level to try to convince people. That said, I think there's also a societal policy response as well. And in this regard, we know that vaccine mandates are very effective, especially when we, when you, when we consider that about half of those who remain unvaccinated are in the unvaccinated but willing category. There are some people who are just really dug in, who would rather lose their jobs than get vaccinated. But there is a very substantial proportion of individuals who don't feel that strongly about remaining unvaccinated. They need something to push them over the edge when it comes to getting vaccinated and requirements for work, requirements for travel, other things like that um, will be effective in that route. And so, again, I, I think this is an important distinction between because what we do on the policy level is actually a bit separate from how we might approach the individuals in our lives. Lena, that brings us to a related issue, which is freedom. You're arguing that we need to redefine freedom. Many of those who are dissenters or refusals refusing to take vaccines have claimed liberty and freedom as the basis for that. You're countering with the need to redefine freedom and the threat to freedom posed by misinformation and attacks upon science. Can you explain? A colleague of mine, Sam Wong from Princeton, a neuroscientist, we wrote a column in the Washington Post about how we need to start equating the choice to remain unvaccinated like the choice to drink and drive, which to many may sound like a shocking analogy, but look, you have the right, if you wish to, to drink at home in a bar. But if you now wish to drink and then get behind the wheel of a car where you could injure other people, then it's no longer about a matter of individual choice. You're taking away other people's freedom, their ability to survive by doing this. And I think we can make the same argument about remaining unvaccinated as well. People who are vaccinated are five times less likely to get illness, to get to contract coronavirus, and therefore to also spread it. If you choose to remain unvaccinated and are going out in public, then that no longer is about your individual choice, that it's also about other people as well. And I think it's really important, to your point, to reframe this because it cannot just be framed as, as an individual choice. Vaccination and public health is by definition about the public's health and well-being. Lena, you, you brought up polarization, and that's a topic that we're constantly talking about when it comes to COVID-19 and vaccinations and mask wearing. And there's a lot of data out there about, you know, red states versus blue states. There's become almost a Republican way of protecting yourself against COVID and a Democratic way of protecting yourself against COVID. What do you think needs to happen to, you know, obliterate some of this polarization and get through this awful pandemic? You know, I am by my nature an optimist, but I am very concerned that it may be too late in a lot of ways to get through this polarization when it comes to COVID because COVID-19 has become so polarized and people have become so dug in on their specific views. 
I think at this point, the best thing that we can do is to focus on the individual, is to look at each person's individual circumstance and help people to make the best decisions for them and for their families. Issues, for example, that we all care about, seeing our families over the holidays, getting our kids safely back in school. The more that we can focus on the individual circumstance and how we can assist people in reducing risk while keeping the things that are of the highest value to them, I think that's where we need to go. Of course, I continue to agree that you know we would we want to see our leaders of all stripes, whether they are political leaders or cultural influencers or sports stars or celebrities, also assist in this regard. But I think we need to recognize too our own roles in this. That. Part of a core tenet of public health is this idea of the trusted messenger. While we are the most trusted messenger to someone in our lives, and we should continue that that important work. You are now part of the media ecosystem that is, you know, some people think is causing some of the polarization. You're, of course, with CNN, and CNN has been covering COVID in one way. Fox News and other channels have been covering COVID in another way. What do you think the role of the media is in all of this? Well, I again, feel very blessed to have been involved in the media in this time because there is an important story to tell. It's really important for people to understand what is the evolving guidance around public health. Actually, if there's one thing that I wish we all could have done differently from the very beginning is to emphasize that the bedrock of a solid public health response is constant evolution. There's new science coming out all the time. That's why the guidance keeps on changing. Right now, as we're speaking, it's still a very confusing time because there's new information about boosters that are coming out. The FDA and CDC are about to review the data around boosters for for Moderna and Johnson Johnson. The Pfizer booster is not even recommended to everyone yet. I mean, it's confusing. And I think the role of the media, responsible media at least, should be to report on why it is that the guidance is changing And I also think that we should not be afraid to assist our lawmakers in pointing out when some things are done well and when some things are not done well. At the end of the day, I see my role as an extension of the work that I would do for my patients. As in, when I talk to my individual patients, I help them make decisions like about vaccines, about what is safe to do and what's not, about how what kinds of tests to get and how they can do family gatherings safely. I mean, that's what I do you know, all the time in my clinical work. I think the and so and for so many of my colleagues who are practicing clinicians, that's what we do with our patients as well. The work that we do in the media is an extension of that. Basically, there's we recognize that there is a much larger group of people who are really desperate for information on how they can navigate choices in their lives. That's what I see my role certainly as in the media. Before we close, I want to ask you about two things that you've challenged the Biden administration on, and I'll lump those together. One is a vaccine verification system, which you've called for, and you've criticized the administration for not putting such a thing in place. And the second is you've argued that the pendulum swung too far in favor of science and data to the neglect of the role of values, relationships, communications, nurturing trust within a skeptical public. Can you just comment on those two things, the vaccine verification, the value of that? having a system, and also the value of a more balanced approach. 
Yeah, I mean, I want to first recognize that I think the Biden administration has done a lot of things right when it comes to the pandemic. Um, there are exceptional people who are leading the effort. They also the Biden administration did such a fantastic job with increasing vaccine supply and distribution. I think they need to be commended for that and for prioritizing health equity and really focusing on reducing disparities. That's they've done incredible work in in many ways around the pandemic. That said, there are some things that I wish they did better, including not saying at the very beginning, as as they kept on saying, that vaccine is just a personal choice, that if you're vaccinated, you're protected. They should have gotten behind the idea of vaccine verification a long time ago because we know that the honor system was never going to work. Also, I think one of the biggest mistakes they made was having the CDC come out and say that vaccinated people do not need to be wearing masks, but not having a vaccine verification system along with that. And so that opened the floodgates. And then it was really difficult to get people to put on masks again once they understood that masks were gone and the CDC said it was fine to do so. So I think there's a a lot that in their communication that I think that they could have done better at. And actually, that leads directly to the next point, which is that we know public health, it's in public health, it's not enough to just get the science right. Yes, that's important and it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Another very important part of the public health response is to get public trust right. It's winning hearts and minds. It's recognizing that good science alone is not sufficient. And I, I hope that the Biden administration is learning from this and also recognizing that follow the science is a great mantra, but that it's, again, necessary but not sufficient. Dr. Wen, before we leave you, we always like to ask, and you you did say you're an optimist. What What is making you or keeping you most optimistic going forward? Well, I just wrote a post column on how... I believe the end of the pandemic is in sight, as in, I don't mean so much that we are going to be eradicating COVID, but that we are learning to live with it. And there are ways for us to get beyond this point when it's an existential crisis and we can get to a manageable problem. If we have vaccines for younger children, which are not far on the horizon, if we have oral treatments, which again are potentially not far on the horizon, and if we have widespread testing, which we're not that close to, but we can get to the point as other countries have where testing becomes part of our daily norm. And I think we are close to getting to that point. And when we do, it will certainly turn the tide, I believe, in helping us to live with this virus. Thank you so much for your time today and for, you know, this incredible book, Lifelines, that, you know, Steve and I really think everybody should get a copy of. We have our copies. And the next time we see you in person, we're going to ask for you to sign them. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me on and thank you for your great work. Thanks, Lena. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.